I think I'm having an art attack. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Art Attack. This is the first episode we're actually filming. This is, is so great. exciting. We can't wear pajamas. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> usually Lizzie is in pajamas and, and I'm have them shirtless. You're uh, in Tommy John underwear. Yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, but today we're actually filming this, so which is exciting because we're talking about the greatest artist that has ever lived. This is an artist who most artists consider to be the quintessential artist. Uh, let's put it this way. When Picasso, the only living artist, got into the Louvre, they said, where do you want your work? He said, anywhere, but not next to a Rembrandt. Because if you're next to Rembrandt, he swallows you up alive. All you can see is Rembrandt. And I want to I wanna stop at that moment and talk about some other people Francisco de Goya says, I've had three teachers, Nature, Velasquez, and Rembrandt. I'm going to take it even further for you because you love abstract um, or impressionist art. Max Lieberman. Max Lieberman said, whenever I see Franz Hals, I feel like painting. But whenever I see a Rembrandt, I feel like giving up. And Vincent van Gogh, when he saw one of Rembrandt's paintings called The Jewish Bride, or nicknamed The Jewish Bride, he said, I would give up 10 years of my life to sit in front of this painting for two weeks. And he wept. And then Rodin said, compare me with Rembrandt, what a sacrilege. With Rembrandt, the colossus of art, we should prostrate ourselves before Rembrandt and never compare anyone with him. And this is where we're going to end the quotes because Rembrandt is incomparable. I thought you were going to say, and this is the end of the episode. I'm like, but no, the art. No, this is it. I mean, like, honestly, I just want to say Rembrandt. And drop the mic. But the reality is there is no greater artist that has ever lived. He is the quintessential artist. This is a guy who's done masterful masterpieces and probably the greatest self-portrait and one of the greatest portrait artists of all times. I mean, he actually categorically cataloged his life through the portrait, and no one has really ever done that. By comparison, I think Rubens did, what, seven self-portraits? Rembrandt did over 40 paintings. At the time, yes, he elevated the genre of self-portraiture to a place it had never yet seen. And as a result, other artists explore their psychological changing states through the form of a self-portrait. But I think it was because of Rembrandt's precedent. So he really is wildly influential in that regard. And I'm excited that we're going to get to talk about him because you reference him a lot. I know that you really love his work. And so I think that it's about time that we really sink into it. I, you know, and it's hard because we really have to do a highlight reel. You know, we're only dealing with like 30 minutes at the most. And Rembrandt really deserves 30 years of this conversation, or at least 30 hours. And I'm, and I'm serious about that. Like, that's how deep and profound his work is. You know, Rembrandt was, was uh, painting during the Dutch Golden Age. And unlike a lot of other artists, he never really traveled outside of the Netherlands. He stayed within the Netherlands to paint. Uh, I don't think he was, you know, agoraphobic or anything. I just think that he loved his country. And he was painting during the 
Dutch Golden Age. So it was a it was a it was a lot of masters that came out of there, as you know, Vermeer and and Holbein, and you keep naming them, they keep going. But Rembrandt was the one, and he wasn't just a great uh, painter. He was a great art dealer. He was a great art collector. He was a great and wonderful professor of art, and he had an atelier with a lot of people. And that's the confusion with Rembrandt over the years, right? Is like he had so many students that sometimes we can't tell, is that a Rembrandt or is that one of his students? Right. Well, that happens to a lot of artists at this time, specifically the time of the Renaissance onwards for a couple hundred years. And before we really get into this highlight reel of paintings, I think that we should just contextualize the time period and what's happening in art and how Rembrandt is so disruptive of that expectation. So he's working in the 1630s to the 1670s, mm -hmm. and he is considered a Baroque painter, loosely Baroque. And so what that means, Baroque is the movement that comes That's out That's when of... you have no money, right? Yeah, exactly. No, <laughs> That's just called he might have been Baroque. He was. He died. Yeah, he, in, he, he died. In, well, he died in poverty, he, and he got buried in a poor man's grave. That's the sadness of it all. The greatest artist of all time died in poverty. It's weird. So, in another weird way, that kind of authenticates him because we see starving as a brand of authenticity. But I digress. So, in the 1600s, after the Renaissance, Baroque was so much more dynamic compositionally than the Renaissance controlled canvases. So in the Renaissance, if you look at paintings by da Vinci, any of our old friends, they are often pyramidal. And so that stabilizes your eye. It kind of focuses your gaze. It slows down your pace. And in Baroque, all of a sudden, the verticals and the horizontals are replaced with these dynamic diagonals. And Baroque masters are people like Caravaggio and Gentileschi. And then Rembrandt, he comes out of that tradition. Now, a big difference between Rembrandt's work and the Baroque masters that I mentioned is that now the church is no longer a patron of art. And so who is going to commission Rembrandt's work? He has to look to the upper class and the middle class. And so that is a really big shift is that who is buying the art? And with a commission comes an agenda. And so what is the agenda in the paintings that Rembrandt produces? And he, didn't he also paint a couple for the lower class, like when he did those sexual paint, those sexual sexual drawings, and etchings? I, I don't think a lot of people know that, but he really was, uh, in a lot of ways, an artist for the people by the people. And like you said, the church wasn't supporting artists at that time, so he really did commissions in. Uh, taking what you're saying and running with it in a very unauthentic way. I mean, for the first time, we're not seeing portraiture where people just like posing like this and everybody's like a head. All of a sudden, we're seeing people like, and if we can go into it, uh, the anatomy lesson of Dr. Tulp, which, by the way, I have to tell you this. This is crazy. The anatomy lesson of Dr. Tulp is done in 1632. I know what you're going to say. He's 25. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Rembrandt is 25. I look at this painting and I feel sick because I don't understand how a 25-year-old could paint this. Now, Rembrandt studied at some ateliers himself before opening up his own school, but still the level of talent to do this painting is mind-boggling. 
So in the anatomy lesson of Dr. Tulp, you've got all of these uh, physicians, right, with their starched white collars. And by the way, how weird is that? Could we just talk about the starched white collars and sure. take a take a moment to say that if you had more white, more starch, you it was like a, a thing of nobility. You were a higher class person. Right. And also just the delicacy with which Rembrandt paints the starch collars. It shows his mastery of pigment transformation. And throughout this canvas, we see different textures. We see the starch of the collars. We see the delicacy of the body too, but in almost a waxy way. And then the weight of the surgeon's outfit. And so he really transforms pigment a multitude of times. And the collar is meant to signal the status of the surgeons. So here he is painting these guys and they're in action. And, you know, Dr. Tulp is cutting up this cadaver who was a criminal, who was caught for armed robbery, who was hung. And there he is as a cadaver. Now, you can't do this in the Renaissance. I mean, that's against the laws of God. I mean, the church is not into that at all. Leonardo had to write cryptically and had to steal cadavers and cut them up in, you know, dark cavernous caves to just do stuff on the down low. But here we are, and this is really like something that's a that's a normal practice. And so Rembrandt is showing them in action. And Dr. Tulp has his left hand up, and he's actually doing this with his hand, right? Which is showing as he's cutting the tendon of the cadaver, it's showing how those tendons work and what, what they would move in terms of the phalanges, in terms of the fingers. And I'm glad that you're referencing the hand because that to me is one of the most elegant aspects of this painting is that it almost seems to be this holistic celebration of the capabilities of the hands and also the mechanism. So we see hands in lots of different ways in this painting. So we see the hand of the surgeon, which illustrates his skill. We also see the hand of the cadaver that's being dissected. And we feel the implied hand of Rembrandt in painting this whole work. And so to me, it's just layer upon layer of sophistication and visual analysis. And just to go back to the context of this particular work for a second, so apparently once a year in this area, there was a public dissection, mm -hmm. only once a year, and it had to be a person who was a criminal, as you mentioned. So I think that's kind of interesting that people would pay to be a part of the gallery to watch this event. And I don't know if this one in particular people were watching, but it was staged and who cares, it doesn't matter. It was orchestrated. Uh, and what I find also really interesting uh, about this painting is, yes, he was a criminal. I mean, he was, yes, he, he was arrested for armed robbery. Yes, he was hung, but he's still a person. And they look over him, past him, to the dissection uh, and the anatomy lesson of Dr. Tulp. And his head, his body is, is in this kind of gray-green tone. It's painted almost monochromatically with a very limited palette. And it's just the perspective of the foreshortening is very difficult from a drawing point of view. It's very hard, it's very high level. So going back again and saying, this 25 year old son of a gun is painting the highest level and foreshortening and his palette is so beautiful and so understood. And you've got this kind of spotlight, which is tenebrism, right? The, the, the idea of tenebrism, which is like the spotlit dramatic effect on the, on the lesson is just brilliant. 
it's one of the most popular and most plagiarized paintings in the history of art. Right. Possibly quoted or referenced. I don't know if it's plagiarized because nobody can plagiarize this painting. They do. It's terrible, though. I've, <laughs> I've watched videos. I'm like, are you trying to paint Rembrandt? It's a terrible idea. It really is. And the way that he's able to, uh, from a painter's point of view, to create light with opacity. So like he has really, really thick layered paint. But then his his darks are very thin so that the idea is that light is bouncing off, refracting off of surfaces. So you can see the surfaces where light shines, but in the darkness, it's very thin and you could almost see through. So you have a sense of depth. Right. And that sense of smokiness is tenebristic, which is what you talk about, which exactly. is a little bit different from chiaroscuro, which is the interplay between light and dark. There's something kind of broody and ominous and mysterious about Rembrandt's use of tenebrism. And I just wanted to comment on two things related to what you were saying. So for me, the two most compelling aspects of this painting, one is his arrangement of the group. So you said that in the Renaissance, it's like face, 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 all next to each other mm -hmm. on the same level. Mm -hmm. And the fancy art history term for that is isotropic, okay. when all of the figures are on the same plane. And here, one figure is at the top, one is in the foreground a little bit, one is tilted to the side, and yet there is equal attention on all of their faces because mm -hmm. the nuts and bolts of a Rembrandt painting that was commissioned is that if they're all paying money, then they want their face to be seen. So he is not only painting from the depths of his creative impulses, but he also is painting to accommodate the patrons. And so I think that dance is interesting. And then the other element to me that is really fascinating, I love whenever artists see what is expected in the trajectory of art and then do something else. And in art up to this point, the only time that we see dead bodies is with Christ in a biblical narrative. Right. And here, all of a sudden, the dead body is a criminal. Mm -hmm. And so what that says to me is that science has replaced religion. That's an excellent point. That's super smart, incredible observation. And going back to what you said about the pyramid, you could see in the painting, the pyramid, once again, is off to the side. Very non-traditional and very Rembrandtian in a lot of ways. And by the way, let's let's be let's be real. We not many people know his last name. He's one of the few artists that is known by his first name. No, it's I mean it's true, right? Like or by one name, Picasso, Rembrandt, Michelangelo, Michelangelo, Tintoretto, Caravaggio, Titian, Bua. Let's be. <laughs> let's kind of. I mean, what are we doing here? Let's be real. Yeah. But it's true. Rembrandt Van Rijn, and as we know, his last name is named after the Rhine River. The Rhine River, which is interesting. Just this intersection between geography and artist identity. So that localizes him to a particular region, which is an interesting note because he never left. Yeah, he, he never, never left. He exactly. Never left. He was always contained by that. So we have to talk about Night Watch. Night Watch is his. Uh, you want to talk about tenebrism, you want to talk about spotlighting, you want to talk about drama. You have to understand, back in the days, in 1642 or whatever, there was no film. This was film. When you unveiled a painting of this magnitude, it was incredible. And if you've been lucky enough to see Nightwatch, have you seen it in person? I have. You have. It's weird because it's so huge. All of the figures are life-size. 
So when you look at the painting, you almost feel like you could walk into it. It's really bizarre because you usually don't see paintings that have what makes it so incredible on top of the fact that it's an absolutely incredible painting is the actual scale of it. It's gigantic. Which is funny because it's actually smaller now than it was when he originally painted it. It was cut mm -hmm. when it was taken down from the initial militia hall that uh, that it was displayed in. So right now the flag hits the top of the the left side of the the canvas. The canvas, yeah. It's, it's very tangential that way. Yeah, and initially it apparently didn't. So there was some space that extended beyond the top of the flag. And so that composition that we talk about as being so interesting is, but we still don't know how it was originally intended to be. Also, we call it Night Watch because it is so broody and dark. But the reason it's so dark is because it's so grimy and it's the degradation of the paint. And Night Watch is a title that was given to the painting at least 100 years after it was completed. So Rembrandt often did not title his work. And so I think that's funny that it, it could be a golden hour watch. We don't know. The scholarship says that the background was a lot, a lot more golden than it is. So... We have to be more critical as viewers and to not just accept all of the information that we see. So the information of the composition and how it was skewed, the information of the coloring, it's always important to try to pursue other facts. Yeah, this is a this is a one of his potent paintings and once again you have a very untraditional portrait. So everyone's everyone's paying here, right? Is everybody paying a couple of guildas, 100 guildas, uh, right? Is there is that how it's working? Yes, exactly. So everyone is paying, but people pay on a sliding scale. And so if you pay less money, then you're going to be in the background <laughs> or you're going to be a profile. That's and awesome. if you pay more money, so it's a higher there's a hierarchy in the placement based on money. And I wanted to point out one detail that I can't ever stop looking at. It's the main figure and as you see the main figure's hand out in the light, you could see a cast shadow on his homie to his left, right? You, you see that cast shadow. That shows you how powerful that light source is. That's a very dark, thick cast shadow, which shows you where all of that light is streaming through. We don't know where it's coming from. It's obviously one source, right? It's sunlight. And it's really, really, really powerfully lighting the entire diagonal of the painting. Really beautiful. Very hard to do as a painter. While other faces are low contrast, low read, as we say. We call it a low read. A lot of portraits are low read. They didn't have a lot of money. Those dudes, those were the broke motherfuckers in the background. <laughs> but the rich dudes, they're lit up. And it's just, it's... It's like a, uh, you know, you you look at some of these shows now, like The Handmaiden's Tale on Hulu, and you look at all of these, you know, hundreds of people on set doing all the production design. I mean, this is one man doing all the production design. This is a guy doing all the lighting, the directing, the composing, the color, the colorways, everything. He's like, and he's the, and he's also you have you know you have your art director, your production designer, your you have your you know fashion person on your stylist it's all rembrandt and then he's doing all the heavy lifting 
This is a this is an absolute masterful work. It's a triumph. And let's talk for a minute though about the narrative. What is it that is being shown? And we have this particular group of the militia. And there's one female figure, although I think that there are actually two, but one is obscured behind the other. So she obviously didn't pay any money at all because she's, she's barely perceptible. But there is one figure on the left, and she's holding a dead chicken, or mm -hmm. a dead chicken is tied to her belt. Mm -hmm. And that would have referenced the nickname for this particular militia group. And then if you look throughout the composition, there are different stages of working with a rifle. So you see one person loading the ammunition. You see another one possibly firing. I can't remember if there's anyone actually shooting a gun, but holding there a gun. There is because there's smoke in the background. Okay, great. So then someone yeah. is firing a gun mm -hmm. and then somebody is reloading it. And so it's almost like Rembrandt looked through a manual of how to use this particular gun mm -hmm. and then incorporated that logic into this narrative that is almost filmic. So there's something informative about it but also something that's really celebratory of this particular group that mastered the type of gun work that he's illustrating and also like the militia was not necessarily an active militia at this point it was just a kind of a show right they were just there as you know part of the of the landscape and the people but they weren't really active anymore uh but yeah you know once again rembrandt 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 I'm gonna drop the mic. Drop <laughs> Before you drop the mic, yeah. let's just talk a little bit about his self-portraiture. Okay. Because perhaps that is what he is best canonized for. And as you mentioned, he did a series throughout his life charting his growth, his psychological development. And you can really see the state that he's in when you look at the particular self-portrait that reflects it. And that to me is the most powerful aspect. It's almost like he's working through his life and whatever life stage he's in through his own format of self-representation. And so I think that it's something that artists do routinely today, but not with the same sense of precision and inquiry and curiosity that Rembrandt did. There's something so poignant and intimate about his self-portraits. And I particularly love seeing them in the flesh because in parts, the impasto is really thick. And so his paint application is very, very layered. It's like frosting. And then in other parts, it's really thin. And so there is variety throughout the canvas. And so since we know that Rembrandt was such an intentional artist, we have to assume that there was a reason behind that choice too. And my thought is that whenever there was a rough patch, like his face, if he was going through something, that the paint, the texture, would be rough to accommodate that. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's got not only paintings that he's documented himself visually, but also drawings and etchings. So he was, he was chronicling in a, in a very real, authentic way, his life, uh, perhaps his pain, perhaps a time when he was, you know, midlife, when he was thriving, when he was just getting commission after commission, making money after making money. He was really getting into his personal life a little bit he was not a good, you know, he's not really good financially. You know, he bought stuff that was really out of his means. He couldn't pay stuff off. He foreclosed. Uh, he had a lot of pain in his life. Uh, you know, for, for, you know, his sons died. His, you know, his wife died. It was like a lot of death 
or, and, and destruction around him, and he wasn't really able to hold on to, to wealth. He was able to spend it really well, but he wasn't able to hold on to it. And the reason I'm saying that is because you feel it in his face. You feel the pathos in his face. His young artist, you see him painted young. He's hungry. He's, he's, he's getting into the game. He's working hard. Middle age, he's thriving. And then all of a sudden, as he gets older, you can feel the pain. You could feel the, the despair. You could, you could feel all of the death uh, around him. And perhaps you could feel internally what you could only see in a painting that can't be expressed with words. And I think Rembrandt, the reason why I go back to the fact that he is the quintessential artist for all artists, not just, not just Picasso, not just Max Lieberman, not just you know Rodin and Goya, but myself and contemporaries, I look at Rembrandt and I go like, wow, he really achieved, he really achieved feeling the inner state of a human being, which I find to be the hardest thing to do as an artist, especially if you're a portrait artist. How do you how do you take inside of Lizzie and paint who Lizzie is and show that to the world? And he did that with his sitters and he did that with himself. That is profound. Thank you, guys. And we do this because we love you. And all we ask for you to do is to write a review on iTunes or wherever. And uh, yeah, and support us. And that music that you hear is by the one and only Manny Tapia on drums. The best ever. <laughs>